Welcome to Dublux Presents. Uh, today with me, I have Joe Hobson, a good friend of mine and a local artist, food artist, if you will. Hi, Joe. What up? Uh, I came to know Joe in his role as executive chef at JoeBot. Uh, he created the menu and was one of the first people I met when I moved to downtown Phoenix. Um, how long have you been in Phoenix, Joe? Man, I've been here for about 15 years, but I got to say the executive chef thing, I don't, I don't like it. And I think that like, if you talk to any real chef that, um, uh, that a cook would respect, uh, chefs don't call themselves chefs. They call themselves cooks. That's what we are. We're cooks, dishwashers, handymans, mechanics, uh, yeah, jack of all trades, but like chef is usually not a coin that we throw around. Unless if we're like trying to get some type of notable attention. Mm -hmm. So often when you see people that call themselves chefs and they advertise themselves as chefs or introduce themselves as chefs, it's kind of like a, almost like a red flag to, I think, the cooking community because it's not really a thing. So there's, there's a lot of humility built into the role in the profession. Yeah. You're a cook right. first. You're yeah. obvious self-promoter. Mm -hmm. Did you design the menu at Jobot? Yeah, I'm responsible for the majority of the menu. You have some culinary education? Yeah, I've got a little bit of culinary education. Um, yeah. I definitely went to culinary school for a while. Um, although I didn't finish with my degree. I was already working in fine dining by the time that, um, that my last semester in culinary school came around. And I'm one of those guys that like, man, I went to school for everything. Like rock and roll history, pottery, sustainability urban agriculture, cooking, um, which, you know, I kind of tell the thing, I tell people the reason why I really got into cooking is because um, I'm probably a little bit ADD or I'm an interested learner, right? I tell my kids, be interested in everything. And cooking is one of those things that is super interdisciplinary. So it's got everything. It's got history, science, math, politics, religion. Um, so there's always something to learn about cooking. Um, so that's kind of why I ended up being a so-called chef, or as I like to call myself, head vegetable chopper, is because uh, the interdisciplinary aspect of food, right? It's really connected to anything that you, that you want to connect it to. It's, just, it's across the board, um, an interdiscipl interdisciplinary um, craft. You know, can you can you speak a little bit more about that? How why you believe that food is at the intersection of so many different uh, disciplines? I mean, the world's first currency was salt. Okay, you know, there's a there's a great book called Salt, and it talks about um, you know the evolution of money. Um, if you look into um, history, right, cane, sugar cane, that's got a pretty turbulent history. Um, Peppers. Involving, uh, yeah, slavery. Yeah, silk, I mean, silk route and so the a lot. Silk Road, Morocco. Um, yeah, the history of the world. Everything's, and you know, forever. Food is the one thing. We, we have to have food. Food and water, shelter. This is like uh, the bottom of Maslow's hierarchy of human needs. Like, uh, it's the cradle of, of life, you know? And so, um, growing up, did you have any aspirations of, you know, uh, moving into, you know, the culinary arts was that something that you that you looked to yeah so that's pretty interesting um i grew up in outside of kansas city 
in the town of uh, about 100,000 people, Lawrence, Kansas, home of the Jayhawks. Uh, and my best friend, Xavier Oman, uh, his family had a barbecue res restaurant, River City Smokehouse. Uh, my mom made the menu or wrote the actual sign for the menu um, that went outside the restaurant. And it was kind of one of those places that we grew up outside of the smokehouse. Uh, we'd work for 25 cent grape sodas. Um, and my whole family cooks. So, and then at a young age, you know, me and my brother kind of became famous for being like the neighborhood cooks to some extent. Really? Having barbecues at our house. Yeah. What was your favorite thing to cook? Like as a, as a preteen or as like an early teen Joe, what, oh, man. what would be on the plate? So, all right. So I'm going to date myself a little bit, but growing up, there wasn't, there wasn't an internet. Um, so we cooked basically what if we'd watch something on TV and, uh, and usually try to recreate that, but we always smoked meats. Like I was always, you know, in every house I think in Kansas City probably has a smoker and a grill, and it's usually wood or charcoal based with no propane mm. or electricity. I mean, I guess that's just a point of pride for Kansans. Well, sure, sure. And so, it, but if even if you go to, you know, like a upper class backyard right or you find yourself in some nice digs you'll find people shelling out big money to have a charcoal or well certainly a wood-fired grill yeah right? yeah mesquite sure. smoke and yeah things like that are very much in vogue the green eggs you know shout out to green egg green eggs and I'm, <laughs> I'm aspiring to get one of those someday so smoked meats was on that was on the menu for yeah, sure yeah yeah i mean that was the thing and then uh you know growing up in kansas uh my grandpa was a beekeeper he had a victory garden in his backyard my grandma preserved everything that we could so um so i grew up around that as as part of my you know environment definitely learned how to skin a fish when i was five or six years old and and fry a fish you know not to not to pin back on a keyword here, but uh, victory gardens, from my understanding, were uh, something that was promoted by the State Department during the Second World War yeah. to, to bolster food production and yeah. to help feed uh, and locally sourced materials, mm -hmm. decrease a reliance on imported goods. Yeah. And, and all of that was a big movement uh, and, and clearly, you know, something we moved away from in the 70s, 80s and 90s, but have, have you know, the the pendulum maybe has swung full circle. You want to talk about that for a little bit? Yeah. Maybe just about what that uh -huh. victory garden was like and uh, maybe, you know, how that relates to today's uh, right, local right. agriculture movement. Yeah, and you definitely see like a resurgence of people trying to find um, find a relationship with like uh, local food sources and gardening's definitely um, coming back and stuff like that. But, you know, from my grandparents' perspective, uh, you know, they my grandparents grew up before uh, modern appliances, uh, refrigerators, freezers, things of that nature. So if you wanted to have strawberries in the winter, you have to can them in the spring or the fall or whenever they're available because they're not going to be coming from Chile or Argentina or uh, Michoacan. So, um, and yeah, the Victory Garden was definitely, that was uh, World War II, FDR, uh, really, really interesting history behind it. And uh and it was about self-reliance and being able to sustain yourself and your family, which, I mean, I think a lot of times we lose track of the fact that through the history of the world, humans have just been starving. 
right? Mm. So when my granddad could go to the store and buy a steak and ground beef 365 days out of the year, he essentially stopped hunting, right? Mm. And when I asked him about that, he, hunting was never a sport for him. You know, he was raised to hunt, to eat, or to feed his family, and that was it. And as right. soon as he didn't need to do that, he went, you know, to the commercially available product. Well, it's a uh, lot of work. Yeah, well, and, you know, so then you, you take into account all these different things that have happened with agriculture, um, essentially, from that 1930s period and, and even, you know, a little bit before that with the Dust Bowl and everything like that. Um, the food that we have available in the supermarkets nowadays is like a testament to uh, American ingenuity and what we've been able to come up with. And it's a byproduct of Monsanto and all this cool shit. And for people like my grandparents, a microwave oven and a freezer and uh, accessibility to all these ingredients that they'd never seen before was like the coolest thing in the world. All of a sudden, uh, you know, you're not struggling to put together a square meal for your family. Um, and I've had, you know, I had arguments with my grandpa about it before he passed away because, you know, I was growing up trying to learn about sustainable agriculture and, uh, you know, really getting into heirloom vegetables and things of that nature and the victory garden and man, how's this all work? And, uh, and he was really proud of the fact that we could grow a billion tomatoes and they're all the same size and mm. you can go get them any day of the year. And I'm like, yeah, but grandpa, that's not that tight because you know, this tomato was picked when it was green. It was held in a silo where they took all the oxygen out. It could be six months old before they ripened it. Plus they sprayed it with waxes. Um, you know, or, or whatever the process is that, you know, it became this commercial, you know, uh, this industrial commercial engine that brings food to our table. Um, but yeah, for him, it was like, um, kind of a testament of ingenuity. So that's a, that's a weird cyclical thing that we're seeing right now where people are trying to come back to. I, I think it's, I, I want to connect the dots between, you know, Joe, uh, uh, you know, in the neighborhood, having watching a cooking show, and you know, deciding to smoke some meats with his brother, and like doing that, and then there's obviously some period of time, and maybe some watershed moments where you started to educate yourself, and there maybe was like a turning point, right? Because because not everybody, you know, n now in 2020, at the time of this recording, it's it's fairly common knowledge, right, that the industrial food system has some unexpected unexpected side effects and maybe isn't the most efficient way to do things right we've been removed and made reliant upon supermarkets and long supply chains and i want to talk about that uh yeah, yeah, yeah. i want to give that an opportunity but first i i kind of want to ask you know can you think of any specific moment or books or media that you were exposed to that made you start questioning um you know, food practices, right? right? They made you question and doubt the supermarket. Yeah, 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 right. And you got to watch out, man, because I'll go on tangents. I'm saying. You're doing great. Thank you. Thank you. Um, well, all right. So um, I was a foreign exchange student in Japan when I was um, like 17, 18 years old. I spent Whoa. my uh, senior year of high school in Nagoya, Japan. And actually, you know, that was the first time um, I was in an environment where I had a curfew and there was dinner served at 7 p.m. on the table every day. And uh, that's actually where I really got introduced to um, a different level of food, um, a different expectation for where food was sourced from and 
just a different observation on how we treat food and what we eat. Wow. So that was probably like that watershed moment where I was like, you know, it, it really made me kind of reassess the food system and my relationship with food and also just, uh, you know, um, it changed my palate. That's fascinating. Which was one of, yeah. So that was one of the biggest things is when I went to Japan, I liked ketchup. I liked ketchup with French fries. I liked it on my hamburger. I could drink a full Coke. Like I'll take the extra large Coke or the big gulp or whatever. Um, by the time I left Japan, I can't eat ketchup. Still can't eat ketchup. Really? And, uh, Coming straight uh, out of Kansas. Yeah. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Barbecue sauce. Um, and soda. Like for me to drink a full soda, I'm like, I just, uh, Yeah. It's uh, it's too much for me. My palate became really sensitive to all these different flavors and even just the, you know, the different cooking processes. And actually, so uh, the first night I landed in Japan, um, I woke up the next morning and for breakfast, they served me a whole roasted mackerel, uh, which is like a smaller, like bonita style fish. Uh, still had the stomach and the entrails all in it, wow. the head on. And that was breakfast. And there is one smoked fish. Yeah. So the first week of Japan, I snuck out of the house that I was staying in and went to McDonald's and <laughs> and and lived off of McDonald's for the first for the first couple of weeks. But by the time I left Japan, that was one of my favorite things to eat. You mm. know, it was like it was this amazing, you know. Did you so so were the was the family you stayed with particularly passionate about food or or was that just you know an aspect of the culture I've I've had an opportunity to uh visit Japan and I was immediately impressed by the high standards they have for just about everything Yeah I think right? you nailed it they just they they have high standards for food I um you know I think that they've had to deal with feeding their people from a sustainable perspective for a very long time with them mm. being so landlocked and limited resources. And then everything that they've went through <clears throat> historically, um, they've had to develop a little faster than us as far as the timeline is considered. So they have, a, they just have a higher respect for, um, for food in general, I think. Well, and, you're talking about, you know, uh, a high population, high population density, Historically, sure. and then less than ten percent of uh, Japan's landmass is arable land. Right? Yeah, and they yeah. have always struggled um, to feed their people. Mm -hmm. And so, there's also kind of a fanatical uh, take, and and with all you know, sincere respect for Japanese culture, um, but but on on the source of things and like taking pride in one's work. Right. Yeah. And, for sure. and, and it's almost the opposite of, uh, of, of sort of like the fly by night capitalism that we've come to expect in, in most of the Western countries. Yeah. Right? Yeah. That's exactly right. I mean, when you, when you go back to barbecue, right. Barbecue became famous because it was, I mean, essentially it was poor people's food mm -hmm. and there were millions of cattle being brought up from Mexico all the way to, you know, the slaughterhouse in Chicago. So it was, it was cheap to buy meat, especially, uh, you know, what would be considered some of the unwanted parts like the ribs or the brisket. And so that's how those things gained popularity was, you know, which I think is true with, in a lot of cultures is people take, you know, the unwanted or the cheaper parts and they, you know, they're forced to try to translate it into something delicious. What you got. 
Yeah, exactly. And, you know, to where nowadays it's basically the opposite end of the spectrum with most cuts of meats for, uh, for barbecue. You can't afford it. But, yeah, in Japan, um, they definitely, I mean, I think it's, it's on average 10 to 15 years in a sushi restaurant before you're actually allowed to make sushi. So when you go get a job at a serious sushi restaurant in Japan, it's kind of like a lifetime commitment. A lot of times, like this is your career that you're going to move forward with. Same with the fishmonger or the knife maker and all those things. And it, yeah, it's a highly respected craft for sure. The yeah. other thing I noticed when I was in Japan, and maybe this is just like that outsider, you know, rose tinted glasses kind of deal, but there seemed to be an honor in in the professions. So there were gentlemen who were using garden hoses at the, at the rail station to clean out the gutters. And these guys were wearing spotless white, you know, coveralls, yeah. right? Like you picture this person with white rubber boots, right? Uh, like a, like a white jumpsuit and they're cleaning out like the gutter of the train station. But the dude wasn't, like sloppy about it right and there was a and there was a gentleman who was the train conductor like riding the train and he was wearing a uniform with a crazy you know airline captain hat and like the whole it seemed as if there was no there wasn't this idea of like that's beneath me right there was yeah. almost this yeah, like well, in tremendous pride in mm -hmm. in the in the role you've been given which which is you know i mean completely counter to the idea that that we have here, which is that there's a hierarchy based on your salary and that if you're paid less to do something or if it's less skilled or whatever, then somehow that is a uh, work that you should transcend as an individual. Do you have any thoughts on that? Is that interesting? Yeah, to you nah, for you real, that? That, that, yeah, that sounds, I mean, that sounds pretty accurate. Um, that's a good point. It definitely, yeah, that, that mentality or that, that pride definitely translates throughout. Japanese society there's for sure hierarchical you know norms that are set at probably within every society sure um but there's definitely some truth to that and you see it so much like across the board right like in America teachers teachers get paid shit right mm. because shout out to all the teachers out word there up, teachers <laughs> thank you you know, but they're getting, working they, on it. They get paid shit because uh, because what they're not they're not financially making millions millions of dollars for a company or because they're you know essentially working for like a nonprofit type of situation. In Japan, teachers make you know they they make bank, but besides that, uh, you know, kindergarten first grade teachers are like some of the most highly regarded people, and it just speaks to that point of pride of like you know, it's not tied directly to your income. Yes. Right. Yeah. And, and, yeah, and, yeah, and yeah. that's I mean, it, it, there, it's not so much that because teachers should definitely be paid more. Right. And, and, and where right. we distribute our taxes and how we spend that is a topic for maybe another day and more qualified professionals. But yep. and I would certainly agree with you that all the teachers should be paid more. But it's about the respect for the profession being directly tied right. to the amount of money it brings home each year. Yeah. And. And, and society is really set up to incentivize people like the, the, the value here, at least in the U.S. As, as an immigrant, you know, I like learned it from the outside. It's about climbing. And so it's like if your five year goal is to be doing what you're doing right now, then there's something wrong with you. right? You're not get on the team. Right? Yeah, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Supposed to be the captain. And, yep. and that's really interesting because you have 
all of these roles that aren't given due credit and aren't respected for doing the things that are absolutely essential to the functioning of a society. But we're not anywhere near as integrated, I don't think. And we don't yeah. have the history of, of Japan to draw on. Anyway, that's a bit of a tangent. <laughs> so so that's a good point though. The the initial the initial question that I had for you was, you know, was the family that you were in, um, you know, was who were who were the members of that homestay family? You stayed uh, in Japan yeah. for a year. And yeah, then... so I stayed with four different families. Oh, okay. Um, most of them had kids. And yeah, it was a pretty standard Japanese household. Okay, so nobody was like uh, they weren't people who ran a sushi restaurant, for example, uh, or something. No, like that. but I, I mean, I was so I was with the Rotary Club. So every every family I stayed with was, uh, you know, the husband or wife was part of uh, the Rotary Club, which technically means that they own some type of successful or fairly fairly successful business. So luckily, I was able to stay with kind of like um, some people that were established in the community. Uh, and then a couple, you know, so that's actually one thing. Um, most people in Japan actually buy into some sort of like community supported agriculture program. And a lot of times it might be like, uh, me and you and a couple of our cousins are all going to go pay the farmer down the road to grow us some radishes and some rice mm. and stuff like that. And, and kind of throw down on, um, on community supported produce, ag- yeah. Yeah, produce for, you know, for our family or for our, our circle of friends or whatever. Um, and one of the families I stayed with definitely owned some land that they were using to produce um, agriculture. And there's just a connectivity between food, though. You know, even though it is like you were saying, like Japan's a, you know, the, as far as the population goes, it's super dense. Um, I mean, I can only compare it to like New York City or, uh, you know, just a really compact uh, society. But at the same time, in between buildings, you might see a rice paddy or, mm-hmm. you know, a lotus, you know, just a random lotus patch or, sure. you know, just random things growing in people's front yard. Um, so there's a connectivity to the food, you know, and people know, like, you know, uh, when things are in season, when they aren't in season and, and how. When you, you know, say connectivity to the food, you mean that there's a there's an awareness on the part of the individual like they're more connected to to where their food's coming from, or yeah, yeah. Or is or it that the that the transaction chain, right? Like the supply chain. Like my my connectivity to my food is like the local Safeway, right? Right. Like I might know the butcher who makes me a cut of meat, but I have no idea where he gets that meat from, or where the supplier that delivered exactly. the meat to Safeway gets that meat from. So you're talking about awareness of the supply chain I think, uh, and maybe a shortness. Well, I mean, I'm definitely talking about awareness of the supply chain. The supply chain is a big deal. But overall, um, people are raised to have a connectivity to what's in season, right? And what ah. a potato looks like and uh, how to cook things, okay. which I think if you go, you know, you go throughout the world. Um, that varies for sure. It varies. It varies for sure. But, um, but at the same time, you know, um, French, Italian, Japanese, Chinese people are still rooted in, I think, some fundamentals in cooking on average. It just it's throughout the society more and it has been, you know, for hundreds of years or whatever. Um, and the season, the seasonality of things like when is, uh, you know, when's an orange going to be in season and when is, you know, when's a good time to harvest uh, mekon, which is their persimmons. Um so Japanese people have a connectivity, I think, with where their produce, where their meat comes from. I mean, Japanese cattle even, 
when you buy Japanese Wagyu from Japan at a restaurant in America, uh, if you get the good stuff, it comes with a certificate of purchase and it shows the family lineage of the cow that you just bought. And then it'll actually have the equivalent of a fingerprint, which is the nose stamp of the cow attached to it. So you get a certification that shows like that's verified. This is this cow. This was its name. And, and nowadays you can actually track like the whole dietary process of the cow, um, immunizations. I mean, the whole nine yards to where they're just really, you know, tracking the whole Okay, so there's a level of fidelity there. Now, I want to pivot back, right? And I think we've we've found like a good point because I was curious when was that moment? And it sounds like your, you know, study abroad year in Japan really changed the way you thought about food. It changed your palate, it changed your relationship to, you know, your everyday uh food and it changed the way that you thought about what it was going to be. So when you came back and you finished high school, did you move straight to uh i mean and i don't want to dive too deep or be too personal in the question so to rephrase so returning from japan what what did you do with that knowledge and how did that change what it was like to come back i mean basically i did whatever i could hustled and i kind of traveled around i went back to japan to visit my japanese families Hmm, and uh, and I applied to be a sushi chef in Japan. I had it all set up, and I was gonna try to get like a ten year visa. Uh, I was gonna live on top of one of my one of my old uh, my English teacher in Japan. His brother owned a sushi restaurant. I was gonna do like the whole thing, like live on top of his brother's sushi restaurant, and had it all figured out. But uh, Japanese people are very stringent on visas, so I came back to America, and um, and. I got into community college. I, you know, I started working, moved to Phoenix, Arizona. And, uh, and again, me and my brother were, so this was the second time me and my brother had been living together for, you know, within a, a 10 year time frame. So we're in Tempe, Arizona. We're both going to school, working, and kind of the same thing happened where we're barbecuing and mm. everybody's coming over to our house to eat. And it's just, it's just like always a thing that I think that we've done is and it, it translates from, you know, the way I was raised where it's just an open door policy and people come over to the house and eat. And uh, it just kind of felt like that's the direction that I should start to take. And as I was going to college for everything, I mean, I went to school. <laughs> hunger, hunger Man, for I got enough credit. I got enough college credits. I have like two, three <laughs> bachelor degrees, but I don't have any degrees because I was just really interested in shit. So I took classes about things that I was interested in mm -hmm. without any real direction, which, you know, hopefully I won't pass that characteristic on to my children too much and I can get them to nail down something. I don't know. I don't, I don't necessarily think that that's a bad thing. Yeah. Uh, you know, I mean, maybe not. You're probably right. Yeah. I think, I think, you know, most of the people who uh, would probably, you know, qualify in my in my inner circle are those who've taken non-traditional paths yeah um and yeah that's true so so i i would i would credit you for having you know pursued your hunger for knowledge um throughout your higher education without necessarily falling into uh, specialized disciplines um one of the one of the dangers of doing that of course is that you end up you know focusing in on one thing and then your life changes a couple years later and you're you're stuck doing something you hate your whole life yeah and, and i and i think that 
I would rather be a jack of all trades. Well, uh, man, that's the thing about cooking, you know, I mean, like, uh, you know, when I referenced, uh, you know, that salt was the first currency, that's because I got bored of reading a different book about food and I picked that book up. Right. So Mm -hmm. the interconnectivity of food really, you have no reason to not constantly be learning something. And it really, you know, for me, I'm somebody that I consider myself a lifetime, lifetime learner. I'm always looking into shit and reading shit. I want to know current stuff. I want to know past things. And uh, food is a vehicle, you know? So So then you grew up in Kansas, went to Japan, came back from Japan, went and studied a whole bunch, uh, and then moved into, you know, um, cooking professionally. And, And tell me a little bit about how you came to, you know, to, to do what you do today at Jobot. Man, that's a, that's a long story. Well, <laughs> that's a well long then, story. hold on. I want to, I want to be mindful of, uh, of our time here yeah, yeah, and, yeah, then for also, sure. and also your, um, your personal boundaries. Right. Yeah. And so to, to reframe it, what is it about what you do today that differs from what maybe other chefs or other experiences that you've had working. Because when we first met, you told me about how you enjoy the role you have now, because in many ways it's non-traditional. Yeah, for sure. I mean, right now I get to cook food for my friends and, and, and people that I like, um, which I think a lot of times this isn't always the case. You know, it's one of those American things where, uh, being a cook is not a super highly celebrated career. Uh, cooks' backgrounds tend to be a little shifty, to say the least. Um, and the best thing you can do as a cook is work for you know the upper echelon people, the uh, or upper echelon crowd. Um, and I did that. I spent a lot of time in fine dining. I've made food for ex-presidents and I've dealt with the secret service looking over my back. I've made food for celebrities. Um, and that really gave me an opportunity to, to hone my skills and fuck with all kinds of different types of product. But at the end of the day, uh, you end up cooking food for people that you don't necessarily associate with. Um, and that's, that's kind of like one of the coolest things about, what I'm able to do at Joe Bar right now is I'm making food, like real food for real people. It's mm. kind of, you know, the way I've, I've coined it in the past, which I think is a good, it's a good, it works. Real food for real people. Um, patent pending. Pending. <laughs> patent pending. Which is just to say that, man, I get to, we get to have a lot of freedom and really try to bring craft, scratch, nutritious food, to people who may not always be able to to afford it or to even get exposure to it, right? So, uh, you know, one of the coolest things that I think is like there's skateboarder kids that remind me of myself when I was 15 or 16 that hang out on our patio. Uh, literally every walk of life walks yeah. through the doors of the place that I work at. And that's dope. You know, working in high-end restaurants, you really do get stuck in an echo chamber and it's a small tunnel. It's a, it's a small scope of the public that you get to serve, which is unfortunate a lot of times in America because um, that leaves the rest of the public 
unfortunately kind of forced to eat um Mass-produced. Ma- Mass-produced. I mean, I don't know what type of label you want to put on it, but, I mean, shit food a lot of times. It's just not, you know. That's. I mean, I, I think it's really interesting because you're pointing to almost like a, um, you know, there's almost like a counterculture element to what you're trying to do, right? You're, yeah, you're taking, sure. um, you know, you, you mentioned, right, the work that you did in fine dining and how that was for an exclusive crowd. Um with refined palates, right? And and you're taking you're taking that elite, you know, selection of ingredients and you're trying to bring that to, you know, everyday people, right? And there's there's <laughs> I'm yeah. not going to use the word socialist, but there's almost like a radical empowerment move. Like I I hear you when you say it that it, what I'm hearing perhaps, and correct me if I'm not picking up on it, right? But that there was something dissatisfying about the distance between you as the, as the provider and as the cook, as the creator, and then your customer, right? Yeah, for sure. And, like, and, and yeah. because you started cooking maybe as, as a younger person with that family connection and that sense of community, is that what was really missing for you in that environment? Um. Or is it a little more, you know? I don't know if there was necessarily, I mean, I guess, I guess there was definitely some components missing. Um, it wasn't what I idolized, right? Mm. And actually, you know, when I took uh, when I took my job at Jobot, I turned down a pretty lucrative position with a pretty well-known chef at a, you know, pretty well-known resort. And he gave me the talk, you know, come, come work here, you know, um, take this job. And in six months, I'm going to give you this job. And then... And six months from there, you know, maybe you can have my job or, or, you know, this is the path. And I'm looking at him and I'm like, man, like, what are you doing with your life? Like, yeah, you make a lot of money, chef. And I, and I love you. I love you. But like, you don't, you're not cooking for anybody you really like. I don't know if I want your job, right? Wow. The long hours, the dedication that it requires. You put your, you know, a good chef puts his heart and his soul into his craft to give it to who? Right. So is it worth the money? Like to, cause there is a separation there. Right. For me, for me, like, yeah, cooking, you know, anytime you put something into a craft, you want to give it to people that, that appreciate you or appreciate what you're doing. And hopefully it translates in a way that's going to make some type of noticeable difference, you know, kind of make a splash type of thing. And, uh, you know, being raised by hippies and, and having a victory garden growing up and, and my exposure to all those different things and, and, you know, even shit, section eight housing and all that type of stuff, uh, taught me, I guess, a different, uh, to play by a different set of rules as far as my expectations for my job and my career and what the fuck I'm doing on this planet. Um, so I turned down that job and I, you know, I had a conversation with my, my favorite aunt about the two jobs. Like, man, what do I do? You know, do I take this job that's really uh, you know, is a place that I would go hang out at on my day off, or do I take this job that's uh, that's you know got the notoriety and and it's gonna guaranteed it's gonna lead me in this direction, and, um, and you know I, I stuck with Joe by because it kind of just speaks to my roots for sure, and uh, and you know it speaks to some of the the people that I've learned to look up to, you know, food wise. I mean, like for sure, like Alice Waters and Shea Panisse. 
Uh, they created a French bistro in the Haight-Ashbury area of San Francisco in 1960s-70-whatever. And it was a coffee house that was full of anarchy and hippies. And they transformed it to like the one of the most for sure notable farm-to-table uh, farm sustainable uh, restaurants in the history of the world. Like the place is dope. And like... <laughs> The place is dope. Yeah, and so it, and so you you feel like you're spiritually following in those. I mean, you're that's more aligned with your core values. Yeah, to leave some money on the table, say no to the you know elite corporate gig, and then and then pursue something where you can bring your heart and your soul. And then I mean, as you're talking about it, I don't know if people can hear it, but but you're smiling, right? You're yeah, smiling yeah, yeah. when you think about it, and yeah. Uh, yeah, and that's a life worth living. That's great. Kudos to you for for choosing the road less traveled um, and then all of the value that you can derive. I've had some experiences where I've left money on the table and was very happy because what I got was worth way more yeah. than, than what was being offered. Yeah. Right? What I, what I received. And, and it's one of the, I mean, you know, not everybody has the privilege of growing up with enough. Right. And, um, and I remember, you know, that I pursued that like, wow, you know, one day I'm going to get enough. Yeah. Um, and that was a big driver behind my decisions. I made a lot of choices where, where I would absolutely work for that chef and just say, hey, my feelings and whether my friends are involved is secondary to making sure that like the bills are paid. Um, and I think past a certain point, though, it's important to revisit that question. But you made a really, uh, I think you like, hit on our next sort of subtopic here when you said farm to table as you were describing Alice Waters right. and the French bistro in uh in the Haight Ashbury uh district of San Francisco. So farm to table, um, you know, 30 seconds, what does that mean? Uh shit. Definitively, I'm not gonna say anything. Local food to a local restaurant. I mean shit, local food to a you know chain restaurant. I'm fine with that. Farm to table is fresh, uh, respectfully, sustainably raised or grown food served to the public. Okay. Sir. And and when you think, you know, when when I think about Phoenix and the climate that we have here and the environment, I don't exactly see this as a place where farm to table could flourish or where we could even dream of supporting the population of this uh, metropolitan area with the agriculture that's in place. Is that true? Um, you know, I think with the amount of people that we have in the world right now, it's hard to say that everything, you know, anything's a hundred percent sustainable, but if we can put a couple things on a plate that is supporting the local economy, um, I think you'd be surprised what Arizona grows. Um, I, I would be. I'm, I'm hoping you surprise us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So tell me more. I mean, this is a low desert climate, but if you look back, if you look back to Glendale, Arizona, in the 1930s and 1940s, watermelon everywhere, right? It was like it was a farming mecca. If you go to South Phoenix, um, around the World War II time frame, um, tons of Japanese and Chinese families migrated to the South Phoenix area to grow. Uh, some of the nice, nicest flowers and all kinds of edible stuff that uh, got transported throughout the country. Yuma, Arizona, right now oh, is still no. responsible for like ninety percent of the of the country's um, 
lettuces during the winter months. But uh, I mean, I've, I just shout came out from to a, Yuda, Yuma lettuce. What up, Yuma lettuce? <laughs> uh, I just came from Cricket Sky Farms talking to um, Farmer Frank, who who owns and operates it. He's planting a hundred thousand tomato plants right now, just ten minutes from here, and they'll be ready in two months. Did not know that about Arizona. What's the growing season here like? Uh, growing seasons are definitely shorter. Um, without getting into too much detail, a lot of flowering plants don't pollinate well after you know temperatures of a hundred or ninety to a hundred degrees. So we have a shorter planting season, but there's things that, I mean, there's plenty of things that grow even in warmer temperatures for sure. Um, Arizona f- soil looks, uh, looks dense and like clay and it's, it, it's pretty sand heavy, but I mean, it's also very nutrient dense and absorbs water very well. So you can, you can grow just about anything you can think of in Arizona. Wow. With Provided an abundant supply of water, but we definitely got the sunshine. Yep. So, okay. So, so it's not just what happens in the kitchen. It's where food is sourced from, knowing your growers. These are some of those things that you saw and, and absorbed in Japan. And you're bringing that with you in the work that you do today. So outside of the kitchen, um, what are your thoughts? What are you engaged in? What are you most excited about what you're doing um, with your suppliers? And what do you see coming? Well, let's start there. Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm always dabbling in too many things. Um, <laughs> what what yeah, are you dabbling I, in I right now that much. you can share well, with, the, I mean, with the internet? I mean, when I saw you a minute ago... I just bought a trailer and borrowed a giant rototiller to go till up my backyard. We're going to turn that into a garden. Um, but, um, you know, the Arizona like farming community, and I think it's a big thing. It's all about this resurgence of people wanting to garden and have that connectivity with food. Um, you look at what the local farmers are doing, man, it's dope. Especially, you know, I, um, I'm volunteering with the Blue Watermelon Project, which is a full circle educational uh, experience gain you know with the goal of educating the next generation of americans or kids to have a a wider perspective of food um Mm. but we just went out to i took a a group of kids and a mentoring at mesa high school we went out to steadfast farms in mesa and like uh it's a really good example to see how they're taking i think it's a half acre or maybe an acre it's not very big but they're just so dense. They're growing 10 acres worth of produce in a one acre period uh, space just by using more modern uh, technology and ingenuity and, and, uh, and, and, and a little more scientific approach to farming than you've seen in the past. So some of the shit that they're pulling out of the farm out there is just insane. And then, um, why, why is it insane? Is it just about crop yield? Well, the quality is great. It's 100% organic, pest-free. Um, they're really using um, a lot of indigenous and just like historically, uh, I, and I, I don't know, historically notable old school farming practices that you wouldn't see in a commercial growing operation, right? Mm. Uh, which is just to say, um, you know, they're a chrysanthemum. I'm probably not pronouncing that correctly. Chrysanthemum. Uh, they're using chrysanthemum pollen uh, as like a bug repellent, 
What? So they're taking flower pollen, putting it in a bottle, spraying it on the plants or something to, to that extent. Really? Yeah. That's and then they have, uh, they've got bat, uh, like bat caves or bat houses that they that they they're, they keep around the farm. Yeah. That also come and they eat some of the pests. And then so fertilize, like, and then of course fertilize. And the also fields. fertilize. Yeah, yeah. I'm pretty sure they collect a bat guano too. So I mean, those are like that's super old school. Like you wouldn't think that that would be. I mean, in a commercial operation, if you were coming up with a business plan and you had like bat houses written into the budget, somebody probably might you know not approve well, that. I don't. I don't think so. I mean, so maybe we could pivot here for a second. I can ride yeah. my hobby horse. I think that there's and I, I do this at my peril because I'm not an expert in in this topic at all. But it seems to me that. Much of what we called, you know, modern industrial farming and production practices, the reason they are the way that they are is is we've offset the cost of resources and environmental impact. Those don't really exist because resources have been primarily considered to be relatively infinite, right? They're subsidized by the government yeah. or we never really came and yeah, yeah. saw a ceiling to them. Yeah. Um, and we don't factor in the downstream environmental impact because, you know, squirrels don't pay taxes. Yeah. Uh, and generally speaking, there's always been somewhere else to put the trash. Yeah. So, but, but as we enter into the, you know, now uh, it's amazing to say this, but like, you know, a fifth of the way through the 21st century, like it's not, it's not the beginning of the 21st century. Like we're about to finish the first quarter of that. Right. Um, you know, we're becoming globally and locally aware of the limitations of that kind of business practice. Mm -hmm. So I wouldn't be surprised <clears throat> if you did run the numbers and you had a cost associated with fertilizer, right? That you might find that keeping bats, because they have this multi-chain, they have this chained right. uh, effect on the local system, is actually not only efficient, uh, but, but it is regenerative. Right. Of the environment, and and we've never thought about the depleting the topsoil, for example, mm -hmm. which is you know not a conspiracy. It's just a fact of yeah. soil science yeah. that we're that's, kind of ignoring. That's bull, baby. That's bull. So so to those who may not be versed in all this stuff, when you grow crops in soil, it removes the nutrients from the soil. That's why the food is nutritious, right? And yep. then so if you don't have other plants mixed in with that that are putting those nutrients back in the soil, you run the risk of making the soil so depleted that you can't grow the same thing there anymore. That's why farmers rotate their crops yeah. and, and, and perform some other functions. And in the United States, we've made a lot of unarable land uh, arable and, and become a net food exporter because we used uh, traditionally rich soil and or chemical fertilizing processes to replace uh, the nutrients that we've removed. That isn't really a sustainable practice. Shout out Monsanto. Well, I, I don't. I don't necessarily <laughs> want to get into a fight with any yeah, one no, of the big food giants, but but it is true that on a local level, we're learning the effectiveness of some of these time honored right. practices. So thank you for riding, letting me ride that hobby horse for a second. Ride that hobby horse, baby. But is that does that jive with? Does that resonate or, or yeah. in a, is it yeah, in alignment yeah, yeah. with? No, for real. Yeah, that's a thing. Yeah. Okay, so so shout out to Blue Watermelon. That, Blue that's Watermelon a Project. That's a yeah. That's Charlene Badman, and then uh, you know there's a handful of people. It's it's really a super awesome collective group of uh, individuals that volunteer their time to to really just try to help educate um, 
you know, kids about food. So you're excited about that. Um, you mentioned, you know, community, community supported agriculture and food co-ops yep. and like group buys for produce. Yep. Um, can you talk a little yep. bit more about that. Do you know, do you know of any movements happening in Phoenix or where people can get connected with that kind of stuff? Yeah. So, so steadfast farms that I just mentioned, um, they do a CSA program. You know, anybody that's not familiar with the uh, CSA, Community Supported Agriculture, basically uh, you're throwing down some money for a farmer and you're betting that he's going to be able to grow stuff and give you stuff back. So let's say, Jacob, you're a farmer and I'm going to give you $100 for the next six weeks so you can buy seeds and plant food and grow food. With that $100 and a bunch of other $100, you're going to grow food and then kind of distribute it um, out to the people that have invested in you. So it's, it's really, a, it's an investment in a farmer and an investment in locally uh, grown food. Um, Crooked Sky Farms, it's actually how I met Farmer Frank probably 14 years ago. I signed up for his CSA in Tempe. And ever since then, we kind of just like, uh, you know, bounce back and forth off each other. Maya Daly is another farmer that's always done a CSA. Steadfast does a CSA. Um, and it's really a way to help support local farmers so that they can try to get their head above water and, uh, and create, you know, um, a successful food program for us locally. And then that, you know, really what that is, is every week you're going to go to a pickup location and, uh, and you're going to pick up whatever the farmer has available for that week, which, you know, I think is pretty dope as far as connecting you with seasonal produce. So, you know, right now you might be getting broccoli and cauliflower because it's February in, or, you know, it's the end of January in Phoenix. And, um, and then in, uh, August, you might not be getting very much because it's super hot out, but they're going to have sweet potatoes and okra for you. So yeah, you get uh, seasonal food from a farmer. It's an investment. So it sounds like, you know, while that might not be as convenient as going to the Safeway, you're definitely making a massive offset to, to right. your carbon footprint by not relying on food that's shipped halfway around the world. Yeah, for sure. You're developing relationships in your local community. If you go and meet the farmer, you can take your kids and you take your family there and actually show them where their food comes from. Yep. You're establishing the that relationship to food, the connectivity you talked about. Mm -hmm. um, and then, and then finally, uh, you get to humble brag about the carrots on your table. Yeah, right? you can show off all day long. So, so if I go to Joe Bot, social is there status food? points. <laughs> <laughs> Shout out to social status points. Uh, if you go to Joe Bot at any given day or any given part of the year is there is there some percentage of the food that's on the menu that you try to source locally yeah so i mean honestly just about every single dish on the menu has the goal is to have every single dish have at least one locally sourced um produce item or protein item and to have at least one solid nutritional aspect to it but uh i mean right now everything from you know, our tortillas are made locally. Um, our beans are sourced locally from Crooked Sky Farms. The produce that we have, if you see seasonal vegetables on the menu, that's because we are buying what's in season and using that. Uh, you know, our curry is a good example of that. 
So across the board, as much as we can offset using more of like a commodity product, we're doing that. At the same time, I'm also uh, the fucking the voice of reason for a lot of these farmers trying to, you know, I'm trying to, I'm trying to find that price point. Like, what can I, like, I can't afford to spend uh, Scottsdale money in downtown Phoenix on your produce. So even though your car- carrots look extra cute, um, it's only going to be about 20% of this meal and it's taking about 45% of the food cost. That's not a sustainable situation. And, uh, and so that's, you know, that's kind of one of those big back and forth that I have with local farmers. Uh, and I try to do that in the most respectful way as possible with the emphasis that the more that all of us restaurants and farmers can just produce and grow more, right. Then you can afford to maybe sell a little bit cheaper and supply more of the Valley. Um, that's my rant. <laughs> if no, we're going to, we're going to stoke that fire a all little right, bit. Stoke so, that fire. so if you could, um, wave a magic wand within your sphere of influence, right? Speaking to the items and, and topics that you're passionate about, where would you like to see, you know, local restaurants, um, customers, where, what would you like to see happen? If you could wave a magic wand and, and arrive in five years at exactly where you had hoped you would be and exactly where you hoped the community would be. Right. I just want to give you a blank canvas to sort of paint your vision. And that's one of those toughest, that's, that's one of the, you know, with food being so um, interdisciplinary, literally, right? If, you know, I can only afford to pay my cooks so much, my servers and my baristas, and and I only make so much. So it's also difficult trying to charge people too much money for food and they can't mm-hmm. afford it, right? That's how you price people out. And then right. they end up, shopping or you know eating at mcdonald's off the dollar menu i can't afford to go buy all organic produce from whole foods to feed my family right so five years from now how do we bridge that gap is a really difficult one um you know if farmers if local farmers creating real produce had more subsidies then it would be so much easier for them to grow food and disrupt the supply chain um Mm. So, so, you know, I mean, we're talking magic wand here. So Uh, would you, would you enact legislation that would uh, maybe subsidize Arizona based farmers if they're producing and and selling food straight to local businesses? So like if you can prove the supply chain is happening here and here, then there's maybe tax incentives um, or tax incentives to local restaurateurs who are potentially, uh, leveraging those local farmers i mean that's one way that the state can help i think for sure that's that's one of those things across the board in america right i mean if we were able to uh you know as much as possible as much as possible support the local and state economies um and really try to make that a primary uh you know our primary not obligation intention mm-hmm. then uh I think that would be a game changer. And that's like across the board. That's, that's not even just food. You know what I mean? If we really went back and rediscovered what that meant, you know what I mean? And I don't give a shit about politics as far as no, anything. And I, and I see Arizona as a, as a very independent right. state in that way. I don't think this is necessarily a left or right issue. This is talking about states' rights yeah. and, and this idea of owning, you know, and having uh, 
a deeper connection, a, a regionalism, right? That supports right. you and isn't sending the money, you know, necessarily overseas to South America to purchase some food mm -hmm. that we could grow here. Um, yeah. Now, obviously, that's good for the environment. That's good for local business. And anything that uh, local elected officials could do to drive that would help bridge that gap that you're talking about, right? Yeah. Because we're competing with economies of scale that are offset globally yep. to the tunes of billions of dollars to bring yeah. those grapes over, you know, from wherever. Yeah, it's crazy. When you look at, I mean, when you look at the giant that we've created as far as a global supply chain, it gets pretty interesting pretty quick. I are mean, there, oh, wait, so no, please go ahead. No, I'm just, I was going to say, you know, everything from the, the iPhones in our pockets to the food that we source from the grocery store, it's just, uh, yeah, everything is so off. It's just uh, just off kilter, you mm. know. Which uh, I'm, you know, I don't, I'm not the politics guy, but it's uh, it's definitely a hairy situation. Like I, yeah, I don't know. Anyways, well, it's precarious. Years, it's very fragile. It's, it's a fragile, fragile. Uh, situation. And it's globalization. It's because of the, it's the yeah, and it's what we've built, and it's a relatively new balancing act that we've created over the last fifty sure. years. You know, and there's, I mean, like my granddad would say, there's some some testaments to like, okay, shit, look at what we're doing, right? Now we can get grapes and strawberries and blackberries and they're going to be affordable, right? Because we are a country of immigrants that have been starving and have been hungry. So who am I to talk that much shit on people that want to buy cheap food? Now we've created the cheapest food in the world, in the history of the world, mm -hmm. right? And it's kind of like difficult for me to be like, yeah, but it's not local and it's not organic. Well, that's not, that's not really what I'm hearing you talk about. No, but trying to find that balance, you know, so yeah. Which is to say that, you know, if you go all the way to that level, you mm -hmm. become so divorced from the food supply that you become dependent upon, right. you know, uh, this really tenuous supply line to put food on the table. Right. Um, imagine if our trade war with China was about, you know, eggs. Yeah, no shit. Right. Like, so, it, I mean, soybeans were popping off with China. That was that was a thing. Mm -hmm. But it's also <laughs> just to say, um, if there was some type of a, you know, if it was just an initiative or something, you know, kind of, you know, similar to what I'm trying to do with the menu at Joe Bot. I'm not going to be 100% local. That's just not a thing. I'm not going to be 100% organic. I can't afford that shit. You want to pay $20 for a sandwich? Like, nah, I'm not going to do that. But our bread's local and our tortillas are local. And, you know, the veggies that we can get are local. And here's a sandwich for 12 bucks. And it's kind of hitting that balance to where as much as we can afford to be sustainable uh, and local, we are going to do that. And then everything else, I will have a statement you know what i mean like i'm gonna have an opinion why we're using this you know what sure. i mean for instance you know we're using a, a local chorizo i don't know where the port comes from so uh yeah that's it's you know but, but trying at to least be conscious it is local of, yeah well and just trying to be conscious about all the ingredients in the menu you know i think chipotle was a company doing that for a while i don't know where they stand on it right now but it was like if they can find local vendors to meet their margins and their prices, they're going to get, you know what I mean? They're going to automatically get, whether it's the fucking and their quality standards. or the black Let's not forget beans, that. all of I that. I mean, yeah. one, of the, one of the biggest, so just to, to paint both sides of the argument here, That's right? True. Like one of the biggest uh, draws of the, you know, um, industrialized, mechanized agriculture that we've seen is that it's able to produce a staggering amount of product 
with um with very fixed commodity pricing mm-hmm. and a very narrow standard of deviation yeah. right Small like all those tomatoes look exactly the same yeah. Whereas heirloom tomatoes, you got the one that looks like Uncle Fester. And yeah, like, they're not it's delicious, to look the but same. Yeah. it's a little funny, right? Yeah, and then when you're trying to, yeah, when you're putting together a business, right? You want to make, you want to try to have everything standard, standardized, standardized, stabilized. Yeah, that's hmm. definitely. So, so I, I definitely, you know, want to give some at least a little bit, and even if it's lip service, like credit to why the system has become what it is and the staggering sure. numbers of people. But I don't think that this is merely you know, a hobby for, for hip kids to start connecting with their food and learning where it comes from. I don't think right. it's just for, you know, upper class folks or folks with the disposable income to go shop at Whole Foods for their whole right. family. I think, I think there's a deeper conversation about community and food. And I'm really um, excited to know you and to hear you speak passionately about this topic. Word up, sign. Yeah. Is there uh, anything else you want to add? Man, I could go on for days, Jacob. Let's, you know, I don't know what you want to talk about. What you want to talk about? Well, I think, you know, in our initial conversation, I really wanted to get a feel for, yeah. you know, what brought you to have, like, what happened that made you as passionate as you are about food? And what are you doing with food today? And I think we covered both of those in an intro. Yeah. I think... Um, you know, I would be excited to have you back on the podcast. Um, you know, we'll be open to questions and if, and if we hear back from our listeners and they have some questions that they want to ask you, we'll, we'll do a follow-up piece, but I also would love to have you on with potentially another guest who, uh, who's in this movement and, and we can pick up the conversation there. Um, in the meantime, uh, what's a great place for, folks who are listening to reach out and find you uh hit me up on instagram okay what's your handle it's gonna be otsukare i don't know how to spell that nobody knows how to spell it unless you speak japanese it's uh o-t-s-u-k-a-r-e otsukare 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 what's that mean uh so (laughs) in japan when somebody does a good job or they're a hard worker usually um you you know you compliment them or you regard them as like otsukare sama or like otsukare san, mm. um, which otsukare just basically I don't I don't know what the actual translation is, but basically it's like hard worker, like good job or that fucking guy. Nice, you know. Nice. So that's what that is. But Fantastic. Yeah, hit me up. Well, it's uh, been a privilege and an honor to have Joe on the podcast, and we look forward to our next episode together. Thank you very much. Thank you.